0: The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddehy with Nissan on News Talk. Bernie, thank you very much. You are listening to The Hard Shoulder, Kieran Cuddehy with you until seven o'clock. And joining me for the Thursday interview this week, the Labour Party leader, Ivana Bacic. Ivana, how are you?
1: Very good, thanks, Kieran, and happy fifth anniversary of repeal.
0: Well, actually, yeah, we spoke to uh, Alva Smith a little bit about that earlier in the show, and um, we'll, we'll speak to you about it in just a moment. Um, but uh, answer me this what does the leader of the Labour Party do now in weather like this to enjoy it? <laughs>
1: What a lovely question. And the weather is really putting everyone in such good form around the country, there's no doubt about it. But sadly, the leader of the Labour Party is still in the Dáil debating uh, today, as it happens, biodiversity, workers' rights in the wake of those dreadful announcements from, from Meta, as it now is, Facebook about 500 job losses, many of which are in my own constituency in Dublin Bay South. So we're still at work debating these issues. And of course, today, being the fifth anniversary of repeal, we'll also be talking about repeal. Indeed, I raised it earlier this morning in the Dáil. With the to so uh, so we're at work as normal, but still feeling happier because of the sunshine. I think, yeah, like everyone else. And, and
0: I know there's this um, rally as well uh, happening uh, this evening uh, as well for for repeal and for yes. what's considered, I guess, the unfinished work on that front uh, from campaigners. Uh, so listen, maybe maybe once that's all done and dusted, you'll have a chance to uh, put the feet <laughs> up and enjoy the good weather, like everybody else I know wants to over the few next few days. Can I ask um, where does your surname come from?
1: Uh, my surname is the question everyone asks. My surname is uh, originally from the Czech Republic. My father uh, was uh, um, was brought over, I suppose, in 1946 by his father. Um, so they were young children. My grandfather and, his, and my grandmother came over after the war uh, to Ireland. My grandpa had been in a German prison, prison camp throughout most of the war. He was in the Czech resistance. Uh, but after the end of the war, uh, with the Allied victory, uh, there was a very shameful period in Czech history where the incoming communist uh, government uh, imprisoned many of those who'd been in the Czech resistance alongside those who'd collaborated with the Nazis so my grandfather had fought against the Nazis but he could see what was coming and he was able to escape before uh, the communist regime really cracked down and came to Ireland and he'd been a glass manufacturer in Bohemia in the south of, of Czech, what was then Czechoslovakia before the war and he re-established along with an Irish business person he re-established Waterford Glass after the war and of course it went on to become a hugely successful entry enterprise enterprise, employing at its height thousands of people in Waterford. And just recently, we were very proud as a family to see my grandfather honoured with a plaza now in his name, Batchick Plaza in Waterford City. Um, And, you know, I suppose his his story and my father's story is the story of the successful and positive contribution that immigration makes and has made to Ireland. Mm. And my grandpa was always so grateful to Ireland for giving him and his family refuge. He came here because we were a neutral country, because he had some links with the glass industry here, but also Because we were neutral and we were away from both communist and fascist, uh, you know, history a, a, a on the continent of Europe. But it certainly made for an interesting background growing up. I yeah, did sure my schooling did. in West Cork and there weren't many people with uh, unusual names there. My mother is a Murphy from County Clare, though, I hasten to say. All
0: right, OK. Uh, so a bit of maybe what we call it, normalcy on, on, on that side <laughs> of the family. Um, to, to what extent did that that experience um, of, uh, of uh, such sharp violence and political extremes as well inform your grandfather and your father's worldview or in their political view?
1: Well, my grandpa was very much anti-communist. Um, he was somewhat alarmed. I mean, I, I was very close to my grandpa, Charles Batchick, and he talked with me about his experiences in prison, about his experiences, um, you know, and his views, his deeply anti-fascist views, his deeply anti-communist views. He talked very openly about that. In a way, perhaps he didn't with his own children. So there was always there's often that, I think, when, when people have been through that sort of traumatic wartime experience that they're, they will become more open later. He talked about, you know, the trauma Tribulations of life in a prison camp, being, um, you know, uh, sort of moved around a lot as they were, um, taking up smoking because things were so boring in prison and, and so, so on. But, you know, but it certainly informed his outlook. He was deeply passionate about democracy and about, um, and I suppose about making a political contribution. So while he was alarmed that I was uh, left wing, left leaning always. As well, because I, I was going to he ask was, uh, about that. But, you know, I suppose. My socialism, my social, my yeah. my political outlook is very much in the in the tradition of European social democracy. And my grandpa was a social democrat too. He believed in the idea of a social state, of the state intervening, but but in a democratic system. So I think that was that was where he he uh, was proud that you know I had stood for your students' union elections. And mm. indeed, he was still alive when we were taken to court and threatened with prison for giving information on abortion to women in crisis pregnancy as young students in the late eighties and. In Trinity, so you know, um, Grandpa was very supportive of that. Um, and again, because it was a democratic process, so for him it was a passion for democracy and um, uh, an appreciation that social democracy is a you know and a strong Czech tradition of social democracy. That that is a really um, important vein of democratic debate. But he certainly drew a line about you know the sort of communist regime that had certainly taken over in in Czechoslovakia. Sadly, after a second, yeah, because the,
0: the experience and it, it, there's no hard and fast rule, there's, of course, exceptions to it, but the broad experience of people who do flee and, and have fled and would continue to flee those repressive regimes, um, say they be they a communist regime, and I'm thinking of the, the Cuban population in Miami, I mean, they, they are much more likely and weighted to vote, say, for a Republican candidate. They just find themselves, I guess, it's 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 a natural human reaction and a pushback to, to the experience that you have fled from and maybe a, a suspicion that they would have of of government and government intervention in their lives.
1: Yeah, that, happily that wasn't the case. Yeah. And I, I know what you mean and it can it can sort of translate It can translate that way. It can translate yeah. into real conservatism in fact, yeah. a sort of in a belief in a small state. And actually my grandparents didn't have that. They did appreciate the value of the welfare state. And I sh- I should say my mother is a hugely significant remains a hugely significant political influence. She's always been a very strong feminist. She's always believed in that uh, that welfare state that that I suppose, you know, post World War Two, um, Nye Bevan approach in in Britain, where you saw the British Labour government bringing in um, this uh, an immensely positive and you know radical intervention uh, with the welfare state, and just you know my parents actually lived in London when I was young, I was born there, and so you know they saw firsthand the huge benefits of the welfare state in England in the late 60s, early 70s. So I think that was all. Those are all the influences that shaped me.
0: And I, I, the the point of this interview isn't to kind of get bogged down in 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 the the daily grind of politics. politics Politics. But I just do want to ask you about radical intervention and the possibility uh, of intervention like that now in Ireland. So um, I I was talking to somebody recently about um, Ardna Crusha. And when Ardna Crusha was was, uh, built uh, in the early days of the state, it represented about 20% of the state's. Yes, expenditure it's for that year—it's it's it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. And, and now we're kind of on this precipice of of the, the economy being so large, uh, the government have almost lost control of it. You know, uh, and uh, and tens of billions of euro in burge, budget surplus. And yes. and even if half of that is unreliable, it's quite literally still tens of billions of euro well, in budget surplus.
1: Absolutely, and I suppose do to we me need that
0: kind of radical intervention again then to solve? Yes. some of the basic foundational problems we have. I
1: believe we do. In fact, I believe that now more than ever we need those social democratic principles to come into play. And for me it just comes back to that very basic, you know, wave of optimism that accompanied the British Labour government for example in 1945-46 after the uh, the travails, the horrors of of the Second World War to come in and say we're creating a new state. We're going to create an interventionist state. We're going to redistribute wealth to ensure that people get services like healthcare and education free at the point of delivery. That is the basic premise of the democratic social democracy that I believe in. And I think for for us in Labour now, it's a huge, huge, this is the huge uh, import of having this budget surplus is that the state should now be intervening. Let's resolve the housing crisis. I put forward an ambitious programme at our Labour conference recently that the state should be now seeking ambitiously to deliver one million homes in the next 10 years, 50,000 new builds a year 50,000 deep retrofit and refurbishment a year because we know that's the level of state intervention that's needed we've seen the private market failing to deliver developers simply not having capacity to build enough homes for the people that people now need and similarly we need that sort of intervention on child care where again we've always just relied on you know small piecemeal private provision people across my constituency telling me they have to put down you know they've to trying starting to look for creches when they first become pregnant because there is just so little child care available and it's so expensive so we need to change this we need to have that level of state intervention and that's basic social democracy that's what Labour believes in
0: Well listen I, I said we didn't want to get bogged down in the, the politics of today we, we started to flirt a little bit with it there so I'll tell you what we'll do we'll take a very quick break and when we come back I do want to talk about the fact that it is five years uh, to the day since Ireland voted to repeal the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution Ivana, we spoke to Alva Smith a little bit earlier um, about uh, the anniversary today, the five-year anniversary of the repeal um, of the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. I mean, given the amount of water that's passed under the bridge since, how do you reflect, not on the day, but on the campaign?
1: Well, the campaign was so momentous it was such a such a pivotal time I think for Irish uh, society and you know Alva deserves immense tribute immense uh, commendation for her work and her leadership but so many of us had campaigned for so long to see a change in Irish abortion law I mean I spoke earlier Kieran, about you know uh, becoming a student union activist in my early 20s and you know the, the, the absolute key experience for me was being a student union president in Trinity in 1989 and every day women and girls really Bringing the student union office in Trinity in despair, in distress, because they had they were in a crisis pregnancy and they could not get a phone number of an abortion clinic. They couldn't get anywhere else before the internet, when at a time when women's magazines like Cosmopolitan were being censored in their Irish editions, so that women could not access a basic phone number. And I think it's often hard to reflect on. Was that the reality? And it really was six or seven thousand women and girls a year were travelling to England then for abortion. They were getting the phone number off the back of toilet doors from, and and the only agencies openly openly offering Mm. the number then was students' unions because everywhere else had been closed down with court orders. So we were then, you know, they took us to court too. Really? Yeah. Well, this is it. I mean, you know, I was in my early twenties. It's more than thirty years ago, but you know, all my adult life. I suppose was shaped by that camp that experience and that, that recognition it that this was, was a six necessary years, change It was five or
0: six years before Friends debuted on TV There
1: you are Well there you are you I mean, know, like, just yeah. to give people a sense
0: of this isn't ancient history it's we're talking about It's not ancient
1: history no I mean it was just we were on the cusp of the 90s you know Mary yeah. Robinson st- stepped in as our l- legal representative kept us out of prison because Spock the Society for the Protection of the Unborn <laughs> Child were trying to put us in prison for giving this information to women Mary Robinson defended us in court She was to go on very short Shortly thereafter to become president of Ireland, and you know we saw Ireland really in the 90s shifting and changing, and yet our abortion law remained mired in this in this criminal repressive view that this was not something that women should be able to access in our own country for far too long. So you know I never thought in the in 89, 90 it was going to take so long to change, but you know to see the huge groundswell of, of of public opinion shifting over the years since, with the awful tragedies of the X case, of the dreadful death. of of Savita Halapanavar in 2012. You know all of these things. I think ch- changed public opinion to the point where, of course, five years ago this this day, we saw people vote in such overwhelming numbers to support women in crisis pregnancy and to enable women to have the choice of seeking termination mm. of pregnancy. And that's that was just a huge moment. I just remember this immense sense of relief that my daughters wouldn't have to come live with this shadow, this chill of the Eighth Amendment that had been over us all for far too long.
0: What impact? Do you suspect the death of Savita Halapanavar had on on uh, that middle ground voter, the person who might have been kind of broadly empathetic to or sympathetic to to your way of thinking, but had their own reservations because of maybe their own their their own moral compass, their own uh, upbringing, their religious background, whatever it happened to be?
1: It had a huge impact, exactly as you say, on that middle ground. I mean, I think all along there had been. People, uh, you know, the large probably the largest number of people were in the middle. They didn't perhaps want to think about abortion. It wasn't something that they would they hoped ever to have have to think about, um, and they just were against it without really thinking it through and thinking through the consequence. And I think with the death of Savita, that absolutely tragic death, the, it, the realization dawned on many people that this was the practical consequence of putting into the constitution a rule that said that the right of the, the right to life of a woman is only equal to that of the fetus, the unborn that she was pregnant with and that therefore where the rights were in conflict, it wasn't necessarily going to be the case that the woman's right would prevail. And the same realisation had dawned I think for many people prior to that with the X case in 92 where the young girl uh, was, f- was forbidden from travelling uh, initially a young girl pregnant as a result of rape was forbidden from travelling and again I think that changed people to vote in favour of information and travel rights in the early 90s which meant that women could then at least get information on where to travel but it still meant we couldn't access services here in Ireland it was still a deeply inhumane approach mm. to women's rights and you know the, our constitutional prohibition on abortion which imagine you know lasted until 2018 you know that was held up around the world as an example of really regressive misogynistic thinking a really dogmatic approach to to women that belittled us as as humans you know and and I think that's not overstating it. I think that realisation dawned and people's views began to change significantly really post the Savita's death.
0: And how concerned are you when you look at the United States and the row back uh, uh the kind of uh, the uh, unintentional pun on Roe versus Wade and the degree to which even public opinion has shifted so you know, so so markedly in that country uh, over a generation or two?
1: Well, it's deeply ironic for those of us who've campaigned on this issue for, uh, for some decades now. It's deeply ironic that Ireland is now held up as a bastion of progressive thinking because we liberalised abortion. So recently in that momentous vote by 66%, uh, because of course we legalised marriage equality uh, just in 2015, again by popular referendum. But I think, you know, When we look at what has happened in America with the rollback on Roe v. Wade, the undermining of that by the Supreme Court, we can see that there's no room for complacency, that just because we did manage to win over that middle ground, we were able to persuade people that women do need access to abortion, that couples, whatever their sexuality, do require a right to marry. These were the arguments that were made in the marriage equality campaigns and in the repeal campaigns and that won over a compassionate, empathetic middle ground. But we have to rec- recognise that in the US, the pendulum has swung swung back, as indeed it swung back in countries like Poland, where we're seeing a really serious Uh, restriction of women's right to to choose abortion. And these are the sort of changes that can happen, you know, and so I think for all of us who are fighting for women's rights, fighting for LGBT rights, we have to be conscious that we have to keep campaigning, keep making the case and not assuming that things will just stay the same. And certainly on abortion law, you know, over the five years I think we've come to realise that we still have too many unnecessary restrictions. There's still not enough GPs or hospitals offering services. I raised this earlier with the Tornishta and at the rally today we'll also be pointing out that the three-day waiting period is utterly unnecessary and should be should be uh, simply taken out of the legislation. And indeed, that the criminalisation of doctors uh, that's still in there in the law that should be taken out too.
0: Well, Ivana Batchik is the leader of the Labour Party. Ivana, thank you very much uh, for joining us here on the show uh, today. The hard shoulder with Kieran Cuddihy with Nissan weekdays from four on News Talk.